the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Lyndon Baines Johnson was a complex man who stepped into the presidency after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Johnson's leadership skills and political savvy enabled him to pass a colossal amount of legislation, including landmark bills for civil rights, education, healthcare, and the environment. He also served as commander-in-chief of the unpopular, unwinnable Vietnam War. This is Lynn Riddick, your host at National Parks Traveler, filling in for Kurt Repencheck. This week, I'm back with part two of my visit to the Lyndon Baines Johnson National Historical Park near Austin, Texas. Last week, with the help of Brian Vickers, the Deputy Program Manager for Interpretation and Visitor Services, we explored the Johnson City District of the park. That's where you'll find the homestead where LBJ's family settled in the 1800s, as well as his boyhood home where his upbringing shaped his long political career. Today, we're heading out to the LBJ Ranch District to continue our look at the place that tells perhaps the most complete cradle-to-grave story of any American president, including all the surprises LBJ left in perpetuity. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. This great, rich, restless country can offer opportunity and education and hope to all, all black and white, all north and south sharecropper, and city dweller. These are the enemies. Poverty, ignorance, disease. They are enemies, not our fellow man, not our neighbor. And these enemies too, poverty, disease, and ignorance we shall overcome. All right, so we've driven out to the Junction School. We've just walked through the door. And uh, what, what do we have in here? This is the original building, the Junction Schoolhouse. It's a one-room country school. 
I mean, typical, stereotypical one-room country schoolhouse where you had one teacher and a room full of kids that would range from age of six through perhaps 14 years of age. Common back then was kids went to school through the age of about 14, eight grades of school. And that's when then they went to working full-time on the farm or the ranch, something like that. So this is exactly the way we've got it uh, laid out in here is exactly like it would have looked when Lyndon Johnson started school here, uh, sitting on his teacher's lap up at the little table at the front where the teacher uh, stationed herself. And this is where he first heard the kids laughing and talking and wanted to go to school? Yes. Now, he came down here because this is where the kids, he could hear the kids laughing and playing and being a very gregarious child and not having any siblings close to him that would play with him. He would just wander down here from his birthplace up the road about a quarter of a mile and come down here. And he was mother was always finding him down here. So she it made, she came to a permanent arrangement with the teacher for him to come down here every day. And so he would come down here. He started learning his ABCs and his and counting up to a hundred uh, at age four, <laughs> which was remarkable. And uh, this is where he spent his time in his first year. So here's the picnic table that is a replica of what is in the visitor center. Yes, this is uh, replicates the, the table that he actually signed the, the bill, the education, the uh, landmark elementary and secondary education act of 1965. He signed that right here. Right and we here have in front of this, well, we on have the side sit, of the schoolhouse. We have it sitting right here, right beside the schoolhouse where it was actually situated when he signed the bill into law with the schoolroom window right behind us here. And people can sit here and sit in the same place he did when he signed that bill. It's fantastic. And look at this view. Yeah, it's got a nice view of uh, the landscape here with the live oaks in the background. And uh, there's a creek that runs right down here in front of us. It's, it's a nice, nice viewscape right here when the trees are in full leaf and everything else. What really strikes you as we approach his, uh, the home where he was born, where President Johnson was born, is this area is still completely rural. I mean, looking all around, I really don't see any other homes. Maybe that's a church over there? That's a church over there, yes. But completely uh, fields and uh, trees and wide open spaces. Yes, that's what's that. That's the way it was meant to be. How much preserve. does the Park Service own? The Park of this Service land? has 600, about 600 acres of the original LBJ Ranch. The LBJ Ranch, when it was all topped out with all of its max property holdings, was about 2,800 acres. The president gave us 600 of that, and he gave us the core of the ranch, where all the where all the residences and where the ranching operation was centralized. So we got the focus of the LBJ Ranch. So where we're standing now was part of that 600 acres that he yes. gave to the park service? Yes, we are on, we're in, yeah. The driving route through the park uh, drives the periphery of the 600 acres that he gave to the park service. Interesting. And what happened to the other acreage? Well, it was put into a living trust for the family. Fantastic. So it's like the lot of it still surrounds us. And, it was, and again, it was there was a the living trust created for the for the daughters and the grandkids and the extended family on and on and on. And and that was and that trust was created. And that's that's where the the, the land around us might be leased out to 
neighboring landowners and the lease proceeds perhaps go into the living trust but that's something that the park service is not a part of but we never expect to see development around here and to preserve it like it is and that was president and mrs johnson's intent that this area be preserved just as it was when he was president we just walked up the stairs to the home where president johnson was born it has the same design as his grandfather's cabin. Yes, this is uh, uh, uses the dog trot style with the breezeway, the, the two living the two living areas on opposite sides of it. It is a little bit bigger than the typical cab, the, the, the typical dog trot cabin like his grandfather had. It has an extended area for a kitchen and dining room, but again, the the style, the the, the concept is the same living quarters on each side of a breezeway where you can feel the breeze and we've got a nice breeze blowing today here i do i would do want to point out that this is a reconstruction the actual house that he was born in had to be torn down quite a long time ago because it was being run down it was just age uh, i like to describe it as perhaps termites holding hands but that's probably a stretch <laughs> but but it had to be so lyndon johnson had his birthplace reconstructed on the original site with the original plans, the original footprint, just as it was when he was born here. Did he do that while he was president? He did that while he was president and it became a guest house for his guests here at the ranch. So Lyndon was the eldest of five siblings, correct? correct? Um, and so how many children lived in this house okay. before they moved to Johnson That's City? That's a great question. He and his to the, the eldest two of his younger sisters. So three of them were born here. He and then two girls. Then his brother and the baby, the, the third girl, were born in Johnson City. So we've crossed the street and we've come up onto the Johnson Family Cemetery. Correct. And this is where President and Mrs. Johnson are buried along with his father, mother, paternal grandparents, aunt and uncle, and his siblings, and then other extended family and relatives further back in the cemetery. I can't, I can't read the writing, but I'm guessing the two largest the, uh, headstones are of LBJ and Lady Bird. That's that correct. Right? Yeah, the one on the right is uh, President Johnson, and the one on the left with the flower, uh, the uh, caricature of the flower on it is Lady Bird's marker. And they're side by side here, like they were in life. And someone put fresh flowers out there. It looks like maybe today or yesterday. It's been recent, yes. And so this piece of property belongs to the Johnson family inside this rock wall on National Park property. Huge oak trees here that really are typical of Lyndon Johnson. His roots ran deep here in this country where he was born and where he died. And that's signified by the deep roots of these uh, uh, live oak trees and a few pecan trees as well. Yeah. yeah this is just a beautiful spot, very peaceful. And yes. uh, it's private, too. Visitors aren't allowed to go into the cemetery, but they can look uh, through the gate here and the stone wall that yes. surrounds it. When I'm down here, the story I like to tell is that the story of Lyndon Johnson out here in central Texas is a true cradle to grave story because right here within 200 yards you've got where he was born and where he's buried that's 200 yards of cradle to grave what happened between that cradle and that grave 
is what made him special. This is where he always came back to. This is where he drew his strength from. And that's the story of this place, a true cradle to grave and everything in between. And that identity, that Texas identity, never left him. And so it was very important for him to come here to restore his soul and be rejuvenated and ultimately die here. Correct. This is where he would rather be. You know, he didn't vacation anywhere. Uh, point I like to make is that, you know, he, he, uh, he didn't use Camp David that much. And they didn't go vacation to Hawaii or to the beaches of Florida or California. When he vacationed, he came back home. This is where he wanted to be. If he was not in Washington, this is where he was. This is where he wanted to be. And I'm often asked by visitors, why didn't he want to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery? Because he was a veteran. He could have been. Mm-hmm. No, he wanted to be buried here. This, is, this meant far more to him, to be right here with, on his land, with his family, with his ancestors, in the place that he loved, that he drew strength from. He, you know, he, would, he would sometimes roll in here on a weekend on a Friday evening and go back on Monday morning. And one of his biographers, the guy that worked for him, Joseph Califano, one of his domestic advisors, said he'd go back on Monday morning recharged and ready to go again. We all need places like that, don't we? Absolutely. And I think it's interesting to note that even though it was obvious to me which graves were Lyndon and Ladybird, um, because they were the biggest, they're made from what looks like um, red Texas granite, yes. and they're they're modest. They're they're bigger than the other headstones, but they're but they're not grand or lofty. They're they're pretty, I guess, um, modest by presidential standards. They are, and that was again part of that was it was intent. Lyndon Johnson never did anything by accident. Everything he did in life was done with a purpose and with an intent, and. The headstones here are that red Texas granite. Sturdy, but simple. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm talking with Brian Vickers at the LBJ National Historical Park. And we'll be back with more after this short break. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm back now with Brian Vickers at the LBJ National Historical Park. So we just drove on a nice little road from the cemetery to the show barn, and 
Um, we drove through a pretty little grove of oak trees, stately oak trees. And then I started noticing that there was cow manure on the road. And sure enough, there were cattle very close to the road. So the LBJ Ranch is still an active cattle ranch. Is that correct? That is correct. And that was a stipulation of Lyndon Johnson when he gave us the, the land for the National Park. He asked that we continue to ranch, to, to operate as a ranch so it wouldn't become a sterile relic of the past. It would be an active, living national park. Cattle that are, that are descended from his original line of registered Hereford cattle. So who manages the ranch and how many uh, head of cattle are out here? Well, the National Park Service manages the ranch. No operation. kidding. Yeah, we are. This this national park is one of two national park units in the National Park Service that are active cattle ranches. The other one's in Montana, so we're, we have that distinction of being one of two active cattle ranches in the National Park Service, run by the National Park Service. The the the, the, the employees that take care of the cattle, they're just just like me. They're an employee of the National Park Service. So the proceeds from the cattle that are sold. What happens to that? Well, we it's not a money-making venture by any means. It's more or less just to keep showcasing Lyndon Johnson's legacy. The We auction off the, the cattle, after the, the calves, after about one year. When they become yearlings, they're taken to a cattle auction. Now, the proceeds from the auction go right back into the ranching part of the National Park. So tell me a little bit more about the show barn. The show barn was built in 1966. Prior to that, he, the president, showed his cattle off right beside the house using an old barn built by his uncle back in the early 1900s. The proximity to the house caused some problems for Ladybird. I mean, you've got, number one, the deposits on the ground, and you've got the smell, you've got the insects. So 1966, I'm sure that Mrs. Johnson and President Johnson came to agreement that the show operation needed to be moved away from the house. So he built this up north. And where's a, the house from where we're standing? It's down the hill here south of us. Okay. So he built the show barn here to showcase his cattle operation. And if you'll notice the thoroughfare running right down through the middle of the barn, it was made this wide so that he could take visitors through here in one of his cars, just drive through, not have to get out and walk <laughs> through the show barn. And he's very proud of showing off his prized cattle right here in the show barn. It's got a number of pens for... Uh, containment of cows, bulls, calves. Uh, there's other pens back here where they would groom the, 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 the hooves, uh, take care of the, brand, the horn branding and all that uh, operation right here in the show barn. Well, I'm not an expert on show barns, but this appears to be pretty nice, and uh, notwithstanding the, the, the lane for a car to pass through that yeah, he built. It is unique, and it's, what, it's, it's just another one of those characteristics of this place that make Lyndon, that just showcased Lyndon Johnson doing things differently. He just wanted to, and it was done with a purpose though. It wasn't, it was done with a purpose and with an intent. It wasn't something he just said, let's go spend some money on a nice show barn. All right, tell me your name. Clint Harriman. And what do you do? I work for the National Park Service here as a ranch manager. My technical job title is supervisory range technician, but we're all park rangers. So what is it like to be working out here? It's like play ranching. <laughs> so we show up to work every day. We take care of the cattle. You know, it's work I grew up doing. I grew up farming in Oklahoma, and, and I went to school to be a history teacher. For me, it's the best of both worlds. So 
it's every bit of a working ranch like you do anywhere else. Uh, but we have all the benefits of being a National Park Service ranger as well. So, yeah, play ranching all the way. And carrying on the tradition of the Johnson family that sure. goes back over 100 years. Sure, sure. Yeah, when President Johnson donated the land, his one stipulation he had was it to remain a working ranch. So a few of his ranch hands and his ranch foremen became park rangers, and we're continuing with that legacy. But, yeah, our, our, our goal and our job is to maintain the ranch as... It was when he was living here in the 1960s, and, and the cattle, we maintain a maternal line back to 1957. That's when he started with the registered Herefords that we still have. Well, you're doing a great job, and it's just such a beautiful piece of land. Uh, the acreage is just so it impressive. Is. It is. Yeah. You can really appreciate why he spent as much time here at home during his presidency. Really come here and relax, let off some steam, uh, and it's beautiful. Why not come out to the hill country? Yeah. How many folks uh, do you have with the Park Service that are working on the ranch? At this park, we have three of us in total. So myself and then two ranch hands um, manage the ranch year-round. We will get seasonals and volunteers like Jim here uh, throughout the years, but three of us. And that's uh, 85 head of cattle? About 120 heads, what we typically average. Um, we are in a drought right now, so like a lot of other ranchers, we've had to adjust our numbers a little lower than that for the time being. But we try to maintain 120 head total. So I read online that the second visitor center was actually the old airplane hangar, but I had no idea that when we got here, there'd actually be an airplane here. Yes, we have a Jetstar here, and that's the name of this particular aircraft. Lockheed built these in the where well, they designed them in the late 50s to be corporate business jets for executives to fly around on for business. The Air Force adopted them as transports for government officials in the 60s. And Lyndon Johnson started flying into the ranch here on these when he was vice president and uh, come nonstop from Washington right in here to his own ranch because he has his own airstrip landing runway here as well. And uh, these were utilized not just during the vice presidency, but during the presidency as well. Because the big airplane that most people commonly associate as Air Force One was too big, too heavy to land here. So they commonly, when he was president, would fly the big one to San Antonio or Austin at a U.S. Air Force Air Base there and park it there. And then they would transport or ferry over to the ranch from San Antonio or Austin, either on one of these jet stars or sometimes the helicopter, Marine One. This jet says United States of America on it, and the wayside that we're standing in front of calls it Air Force One Half. Yes, the aircraft were owned by the Air Force. They were in the presidential squadron, the presidential aircraft squadron at Andrews Air Force Base, right outside of Washington, D.C. Lyndon Johnson nicknamed it Air Force One Half. Now, let's back up just a little bit. Any aircraft, Air Force aircraft that the president flies on, when he's on that airplane, its radio call sign is Air Force One. So in reality, when he was on board this airplane or any other like this, there were six of these in the fleet. When he was on board one of these, its radio call sign at the time he was on it was Air Force One. He nicknamed it Air Force One Half because of its diminutive size <laughs> versus the big one. And he had to stoop over to get into it. He's a big man, six foot four. We've already talked about that. But to, to get into this thing, he had to 
bend over, stoop down to get into it. Once he's inside, he could be comfortably seated, but he called it Air Force One Half, again, because of the, its size. It's not near as big as the Boeing 707. So let's take a look inside the hangar. Yes, visitor this center. Is the hangar visitor center. All right, what do we have in here? Okay, this is the original airplane hangar. It was built for his own private airplane, a Beechcraft Queen Air and then a King Air later to house his own private airplane when he was a senator. He needed an airplane to get back and forth to Washington quicker than taking a car and taking three to four days. This was the days before interstate highways, or as interstate highways were being built. So it took a considerable amount of time to drive from Texas to Washington. Being the kind of guy he was and wanting to get to business as quickly as possible, he bought an aircraft and he built this hangar to house that. During the presidency, he turned it into an all-purpose building. He took the airplane out, converted it into, paneled it, uh, put lighting, dropped the ceiling, put lights in, and it became a room where he could hold press conferences. He could sign have the signing parties, signing ceremonies for legislation in here. Uh, big meetings, if there wasn't enough room in the house for a large meeting, they would meet in here. He even showed first-run movies here in this room. Here's the projection booth for the movies right oh, up here. Yeah. And the screen is still up there. It's on the other side of this bank of lights that's dropped down from the ceiling up here. Oh, I see. So he very much invited the public to come here for first-run movies. He had a deal with Hollywood producers that whenever a new movie would come out, like Witch Cast and Sundance Kid, he got a reel as soon as the movie theaters did. And they would show movies right here that set up chairs. And he'd invite the community, surround people in the in the area to come here and he didn't charge for it. It was, it was a free movie night. So we really haven't talked much about Lady Bird and that's a whole huge topic of its own. But here's a little space dedicated to her. Yes, uh, Lady Bird was, had a huge impact on him and his presidency. A lot more than a lot of people realize. She was a very quiet, reserved person, very well-mannered, very gracious. She didn't seek the limelight, but she very much was behind him. So we've put up an exhibit here that really commemorates a life devoted to beauty and duty. And I say that because everybody thought that she was all about beautification, highways, cleaning up the highways, planting wildflowers along the highways, but it goes beyond that. She leveraged the office of the First Lady to pursue, through her husband's means legislation to preserve and conserve natural resources, establish more national parks, and just in general, make nature a part of everybody's life. All right, so we've exited the hangar and now we're walking over to the house. Well, we're gonna go to the client shop first. Lynn, I wanna show that to you and make the, the climax be the house itself. Okay. The Klein shop was uh, named for a gentleman named Lawrence Klein who worked for the president. He was his all-purpose handyman, plumber, electrician, carpenter, and he had a workshop here right on the grounds that we've now converted into a car museum. Oh, wow. So a car museum, here we are. What do we have here? We have his personal vehicles that he liked to drive around. Lyndon Johnson loved cars. Like any typical Texan in a rural area, he liked to get out and drive the roads. He had a number of vehicles he would do that in. 
Principally, his signature car was a Lincoln Continental, a convertible. It's always white. He always chose white. He got a new one every year. He didn't get rid of the old ones. He just kept them. We have the 1966, the 1967 models. Always convertible, always with a coffee creamer type of colored leather interior. Huge V8 engines. These things are monsters compared to our cars today. This is what he would typically take visitors out on to show. He would drive the, one of these down right through the middle of the show barn. And that's why the I show barn. I can almost see it. Yeah, that's why the show barn thoroughfare was so wide to accommodate a Lincoln Continental going right down through the middle of it. And he'd put the top down. He always wanted the top down when he drove people around on the ranch. And he's got some other play toys in here, some other cars. The car that I believe he had the most fun with was the amphibious car, or sometimes called the amphicar. Please understand that Lyndon Johnson owned more property than what was at the LBJ ranch. He had about six other ranches. Not contiguous, but six other pieces of property. One of those was up on the Colorado River on what is today Lake LBJ. Back then it was called Lake Granite Shoals. He had a piece of property up there, a ranch house. It's where he kept his cabin cruiser boat and the amphibious car. And what he liked to do was play tricks on people, get first-time first visitors into the amphibious car, and he would drive along the shore of the lake and then pretend to lose control of the car, the brakes go out, and roll rapidly towards the water, enter the water, and all the way out of time, he's screaming, the brakes have gone out, we're gonna, we're gonna go in, we're gonna go under. And then he would put it into boat mode. By that time, perhaps his visitors had bailed out of the car, and then he would laugh and make fun of people that bailed out of the car, and he would continue to tool around the lake in the amphibious car. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm talking with Brian Vickers at the LBJ National Historical Park. And we'll be back with more after this short break. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to offer members up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity line of credit. Now is a great time to apply for a rate of 3.25% APR before they jump up. Take advantage of low rates and a great deal at interiorfcu.org. Membership is required, equal housing lender. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm back now with Brian Vickers at the LBJ National Historical Park. So now we are walking up to Lyndon Johnson's home, his house. This is the Texas White House. Now, 
He did not call it the Texas White House. The family didn't call it that. His staff never called it that. The media gave it the name Texas White House for two reasons. Number one, the amount of time he spent here, one quarter of his presidency was spent here at the ranch in this house. He came, about one quarter of his presidency, he came back here 74 times, spent 490 days of his presidency here. But not just that he came here, but what he did while he was here. He worked from here, operated from here, just as he did in Washington, D.C. He had the runway and the airplanes to bring people in here. He, had, he built an office onto the house. It was a rather large office, had four desks in there, multiple telephone lines coming in and out. So teletype, secretaries, very busy, just like it was in Washington. So it was not just the time he spent here, but what he did while he was here. Here at the ranch, he would invite world leaders, he'd invite congressmen, senators, come out and work over a piece of legislation. He held meetings on Vietnam with his military leaders here. Uh, as I said, hosted four world leaders here, colleagues, contemporaries of his right here, rather than in Washington. First president to ever do that, to host a world leader at any place other than Washington, D.C. And so the media started calling it the Texas White House, and the name stuck. He and Lady Bird, they just called it the Ranch House. How would you describe the architecture of this house? This is uh, what I would describe as a, as a mixture of German farmhouse coupled with uh, Texas rural limestone uh, fabrication, a, ran a, a typical rancher, but it does have a second level. If you think of a ranch house, a rancher in, in Texas is a one-level, one-story house. This does have a second level, but it's, uh, it's, it's got columns on the front that look like Greco architecture. It's got this limestone that the Germans built and the rest of it's just pretty simple. It's wood siding and limestone. So it's not grandiose in appearance in terms of what you would think of as a mansion. It doesn't have the appearance of a mansion. It has the appearance of a large family house, which is exactly what it was. Did Johnson build this house from scratch? No. The house started in 1894 a German immigrant family by the name of Meyer, no relationship whatsoever to Lyndon Johnson's ancestry, started in 1894, built a simple one-room German farmhouse along the lines of what German farmers in the old country did. Simple one-room with a loft on the second level. Lyndon Johnson's aunt and uncle, one of his father's sisters and her husband, Clarence Martin, purchased this in 1909 and they began building onto it and adding to it. And they added a formal living room, a dining room, a den, a kitchen, and it grew to about half the size of what it is today. It grew to some 4,000 square feet. And then Senator and Mrs. Johnson purchased it in 1951, put a lot of work into it for about 16 months, and moved in in 1952. And they continued adding on to it, like what his aunt and uncle had started, and they built it out to 80. 8,400 square feet, 8,400 square feet of living space. Wow. Eight bedrooms. You don't get that feeling that this house is that big. No, you don't. And it wasn't because they needed that much space for the family. You're talking about a family of four. President and Mrs. Johnson and two daughters. They certainly don't need 8,400 square feet. It was because of his desire to bring Washington and the world 
to Texas and put them up in the house. Prior to 1967, he and Mrs. Johnson shared a bedroom where the bay window is. It's a small bedroom by presidential standards. The reason they built on huge his and her master suites, she had a separate bedroom, is because of his penchant for working all night long. And she couldn't get any sleep. He's on the phone call. He might even call an advisor into the room. And Ms. Johnson, I'm assuming she finally demanded her own space. So in 1967, they built on the final edition two huge bedrooms, his and hers. Now, that's not to say she didn't spend time with him, especially in his retirement years after the presidency. She, you know, shared a bedroom with him. But she always maintained her own separate bedroom if she needed space away from him. Because he did. He worked all night long. In his bedroom, there were three telephone lines, three TVs for the three networks of the day, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And there's a sitting area in there where advisors would come in and plop down and talk to him about his agenda. And Mrs. Johnson had her own bedroom where she did likewise. She entertained, had a sitting area. She had her own desk in her bedroom. And he didn't seem to be shy at all about having folks come into his personal space. No. Uh, his bathroom right, uh, in his master suite, it's, it's well known that he had a, one of the many telephones in the house. One was right beside the toilet in his bathroom. And he, he would, you know, this was in, whether it was in Washington or here, he had no reservation about have, <laughs> asking one of his advisors to come in and take a memo down as he's sitting doing his business. <laughs> he didn't want to waste one minute. He never wasted anything. There's a great <laughs> book on him, and it's called The Fierce Urgency of Now. Whenever he wanted something done, he wanted it done yesterday. <laughs> and we should add that uh, the hammering in the background is some of the work being done, the painting that's being done today, some repairs to yes, the exterior we... part of the house. And this was the place, um, the morning in January 1973, where Lyndon woke up and reached for the phone to call the Secret Service because he felt ill and died here. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, January 22nd, 1973. He was not feeling well, called for the Secret Service to come help him. He was in his bedroom in the back of the house, and uh, it was a massive heart attack. It was his third major heart attack in his life, and it's the one that, that took him. Age of 64, very young. I like to think that he wanted to die early. He didn't want to grow old and have to be dependent upon people to take care of him. Now that's my personal opinion. It's not necessarily a position that some biographers would agree to, but it's my learned opinion, having read as much as I can about the man, that he wanted to die early. He did not take care of himself. He went back to smoking regularly and heavily after he left the presidency. Uh, Mrs. Johnson, Lady Bird and the two daughters were mortified that he would return to smoking, chain smoking, when he left the presidency. But he did. He didn't take care of himself. And uh, when he had a second heart attack, he suffered that while visiting his uh, daughter, uh, the older daughter, Linda, and her husband, Chuck Robb, in Virginia. He suffered the heart, second heart attack. And they thought they were going to lose him then. And he said, if I'm going to die, get me back to my ranch. That's where I want to die. I don't want to die in a hospital in Virginia. So he survived that one, and he got his wish with the third heart attack. He died right on his ranch. So I wanted to ask you, Brian, how long you have been out here at the LBJ uh, National Historical Park. 
And what do you personally find most interesting? Well, I've been here nine years. That's the easy part to answer. What I find most interesting is the way that he wanted to showcase his life and the way he was raised to people of the world. That anybody that works hard can bring themselves up from any kind of background, however austere or challenging or difficult for them, and become President of the United States. And he did that just through sheer determination and hard work. And you had mentioned to me earlier that you um, had been in the military. You have a uh, U.S. veteran pin on right now. What are your thoughts about LBJ and what, how you felt um, at the time? You ask uh, something that I do speak on with visitors. When the war ended under Nixon, I just become draft eligible, and then Nixon did away with the draft. 1974? Well, I, I graduated from high school in 1973. Yeah, the draft ended in 1974, but I was in the last class to get a draft number. So I did indeed get a draft number. I wasn't in danger of being drafted and sent because I had a very high draft number. However, that does not take away from the fact that I've become a student of the Vietnam War because I had two uncles over there, survived it, but I was scared for them because they were, they were Army soldiers on the ground in the, in the sector of the military that had suffered the highest casualties. They were infantrymen. So I very definitely had an interest in what was going on in Vietnam. Uh, I had cousins, I had cousins, first cousins that were over there as well. So in the aftermath of that and, and going to college and becoming and majoring in political science and, and international relations, I always hearkened back to the Vietnam War and what it cost America and what was, and then when I came to this park, what was LBJ's true role in that? Because you hear varying stories that he inherited a war from Dwight Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy. Yes, perhaps so, but he also was the commander-in-chief during the escalation. So he escalated the war. And like anything, any segment of society, who's ultimately responsible? Who's ultimately accountable? Let's take the analogy of a football team. If the football team falls short of expectation, who gets the blame? The coach. Not the quarterback necessarily, but the coach. In business, a business fails. Who gets, who gets blamed? Even though they, maybe people down the line didn't do their jobs right. Who gets blamed? The CEO. Lyndon Johnson was responsible. Ultimately, he got a lot of contradictory advice from hawks and doves, but ultimately the decision was his to escalate. And what I think his problem was, he was trying to satisfy both ends, and do it peaceably. And he didn't want to go to all-out war which Richard Nixon was willing to do. So I think that was his downfall. I think that's the only area he failed in. He mightily succeeded in his domestic agenda, but Vietnam ruined him. But he owns part of that failure himself. And he admitted that. And I think that perhaps the American public would have been um, looking at him more kindly had his administration been more honest. I think if they'd been more transparent, certainly. I think the, his downfall was the 1968 Tet Offensive when Viet, North Vietnam rolled into South Vietnam and all the while everybody had been preaching that they're on their knees, that North Vietnam is on their knees and yet they have this massive offensive into South Vietnam. At that point, the American public and Congress said, you've been lying to us. 
they're stronger than they've ever been. How could they invade all the way down through South Vietnam and be so weak that we could just, that we can roll over them in, in an instant? And so the, the 1968 Tet Offensive is what ruined him. And it, was what, what, it, it turned the public against him. Do you feel like your personal view, um, how you felt when you saw your uncles going to war and the subsequent years since you learned more and more about the Johnson administration and the uh, positive uh, legislation he got through, do you feel like your, your views have softened? They have. I came here, I was kind of ambivalent about him. While I may still have reservations about parts of his character, I do admire him for what he was able to do because I didn't realize the scope of his domestic agenda and what all he did that, that just in a private sense affects me today. I mean, I, I'm a park ranger, I enjoy national parks. He brought more new national parks into existence. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. I mean, those things, you know, I like drinking clean water. I like drink, breathing pure air. That's just a minute example of what it is, but I'm sure that I benefited and didn't realize it as a child in, in a rural elementary school that what he did with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act had a direct impact on my ability to get a good education. Do you think as the decades go by um, and the Vietnam War gets further and further behind us, is history sort of uh, softening? Yes. That's a point we make here all the time as the interpreters, as the park rangers doing with visitor services, is that, you know, they say time heals all wounds. I wouldn't say it heals all of them, but they've healed a great many. A lot of the point we, uh, that we hang our hat on is that with even the millennials and younger generations, a lot of what you enjoy today is a direct consequence of what things he did, whether you realize it or not. Brian, I have to thank you so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure being escorted uh, around this vast National Historical Park. Uh, it's so much more than I ever knew or thought about. It's just amazing here. It's been our pleasure, Lynn, to have you out here. I enjoyed today as well. Okay. I mean, this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a supervisor. I'm too often chained to a desk. But I love getting out and talking to people like you and visitors. It's that's why I came here, and that's and I and I share the stories, and that that means a lot to me. When people come in here, and I'm able to give them a different story, give shed a, a new light on the president who was controversial, and you know I think that you I think that your insinuation's correct. People are kinder to him now. If you look at approval ratings when he left office versus what people may think of him now. The numbers are hugely different. Well, I think we have a more uh, inspired point of view of how difficult it is, especially in today's political environment, to pass major pieces of legislation, which is what he was doing every day almost. He, he was a master at it, truly a master. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. It's, and uh, invite your friends to come see us. I will. There's really no part of America where the promise of equality has been fully kept. In Buffalo, as well as in Birmingham, in Philadelphia, as well as Selma, Americans are struggling for the fruits of freedom. This is one nation. What happens in Selma or in Cincinnati 
is a matter of legitimate concern to every American. But let each of us look within our own hearts and our own communities, and let each of us put our shoulder to the wheel to root out injustice wherever it exists. That's our show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Traveler Editor-in-Chief Kurt Repenschek traveled to Everglades National Park this past week with Special Projects Editor Patrick Cohn and Contributing Editor Kim O'Connell to work on a range of stories, from invasive species to sluice logs, and an interview with Superintendent Pedro Ramos. Watch for these and other stories from the park in the coming weeks on The Traveler. This is Lynn Riddick. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.